The Incomparable. Number 283. January 2016. Hello everyone and welcome back to The Incomparable for a sort of flashcast episode in response to the very sad death of David Bowie earlier this week. I'm your host, Anthony Johnston, and with me today, making time at very short notice, is Erica Ensign. Hello. I'm happy and sad to be here. I think we all are, yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, The internet's Dr. Drang. Hello. And David Law. Hello there. Yeah, I think we're all kind of both happy and sad to be here. You know, we all love talking about Mm. Bowie. We all loved him. That's why we want to do a podcast about him. But at the same time, of course, we're very sad that he's gone. And he had such an incredible life and left such an incredible legacy. His body of work is enormous. Uh, his, his legacy and reputation are enormous and nobody could say that he didn't live life to the absolute fullest. You know, he lived um, five, six, seven lifetimes in the space of, of one in his, you know, all too short time in the world. Um, and obviously we'll talk about that. Uh, throughout the course of the show but at the same time there is no way we can cover the whole thing i did it at one point i considered maybe chronologically going through his career and then i looked at it <laughs> we would be it would here. take a while right you thought star wars was bad we would be here until <laughs> next year um so instead and i think this is appropriate for this sort of show instead i want to focus on what bowie meant to us to each of us and the legacy he will leave behind in our own lives. And so the first thing I want to ask, and I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask Erica this first, because Erica, you're the youngest here. Ha ha. Um, Yes, you are. Yes, you Uh, are. What was, (laughs) what was the first Bowie song you heard? How, (laughs) how did you hear it? How did you then get further into his work and why? What was it? you know, that you heard or you saw in him or in his work that made you want to seek out more of this this strange, chameleonic artist? Oh boy, this is a lot like when I get a similar question about Doctor Who. I don't have a good answer because I just grew up with David Bowie as a, a part of the fabric of my life. My parents were rock and roll fans and my dad loved David Bowie. So it was just this music that I always kind of knew. Um, I I always say that The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and The Spiders from Mars is my favorite album because I think that was the first album that I learned to love as a piece, like as as all one, you know. I mean, I... I, I think as a really little kid, I, I gravitated towards the Beatles because it was, you know, all poppy and stuff. But I remember being in junior high and high school and just sort of, it wasn't discovering because I had always known uh, about Ziggy Stardust, but I guess rediscovering this this crazy science fiction album because I was always a huge geek as a kid. And I just sort of learned that, hey, you can you can do anything in music. It doesn't have to just be sounds and, and notes and, and and fun words or even, you know, you know, touching words. It can it can tell stories. And that was the first time I recognized that music could tell stories in that particular way. So I would just listen to the, that album over and over and over and over again. And yeah, so I guess I don't have a first song. I don't know exactly when I heard it at first, but I do know that it was David Bowie that opened my eyes to a whole new vista of the way that music could tell a story. And then from there, you know, I, I got into other things that he did. And, you know, of course, had that 
stereotypical girl crush on the super androgynous, amazingly sensual person that David Bowie was. But it really started with uh, with that album, with Ziggy Stardust. That's that's really interesting for for two reasons, I think. Firstly, the storytelling thing, because that was such a big part of his work. And Bowie, I remember an interview very early on in his career where he was asked to describe himself. I think it was when he just started moving into acting. And somebody said, you know, what do you think of yourself as? Are you a performer? Are you a songwriter? Are you an actor? And he just said, I'm a storyteller. And I thought that was a mm. wonderful way of encapsulating everything that he did. Uh, and a large part of the appeal of his work. But also, um, so, but this would have been around the time, I'm guessing this would have been around the time that in the charts, he was doing stuff like the Let's Dance era. Mm -hmm. So you were aware of Bowie already. That was what was in the charts, but it was Ziggy Stardust that really grabbed you. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I I loved the the radio stuff that I was hearing too, and and I think that even at that time there was a part of me that recognized like this is the same guy. He looks completely different, and that in itself was another thing to to sort of draw me in. But I think it, it also in part Ziggy Stardust because that was I think that was one of my dad's favorite albums of his. He had a, a whole bunch of them on vinyl. I remember just looking at all the album covers as pieces of artwork when I was young. I think the first thing that that really made me go and re-examine Ziggy Stardust in a, a, a more profound way was I had a, a group of friends who were in a, a band in high school and they were thinking of covering Suffragette City. And I was like, oh yeah, that song, I know that song. And around that time, I, my mom mentioned that her favorite part of that song was the wham, bam, thank you, ma'am line, which sort of, <laughs> not only was I discovering David Bowie, but I was discovering my mother as like a really full, cool person, which is kind of a neat thing to discover. So thank you, David Bowie, for that as well. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that was when I really just started listening to the album over and over again, because I was like, oh, yeah, I know that song, I should listen to it. And then I just, it was like falling into a whirlpool and, and understanding so much more on the other side. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, and you, you mentioned the, the cover of Ziggy Stardust. I don't know if you saw, but there were um, there was a sort of impromptu gathering of people at Hedden Street where the album cover for Ziggy Stardust was shot. I saw some of the pictures on, on Twitter and I was like, that is just what an amazing testament to the, the life's work of this person that like I, I got misty and wished I was there. Right, right. I mean, the Furriers is long gone. Uh, you know, the street looks quite different now. But yeah, everybody knows where that, every Bowie fan anyway, knows where that photo was taken. And so, I mean, there were gatherings in Brixton where he was born. Um, and there's a mural outside Brixton Tube Station as well, which, you know, so you'd expect people to gather there. But I thought it was interesting that a lot of people did go to Hedden Street, specifically to the Ziggy Stardust uh, <laughs> location. You know, it's, uh, what an impact hmm. that album and that album cover had. It's like the zebra stripe at Abbey Road. Mm. Yeah. It, 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 it's, yeah. It's, you know, maybe not, a, it's not at that level. There's no, uh, you know, web camera constantly focused on it to, to watch tourists uh, pose themselves. Uh, and and as, as you say, if it doesn't look quite the same, you know, you don't, you don't get the, whatever, the K-West sign over, over the top. Right. Uh, you know, it, it's not, it doesn't have quite the impact, but still that's, that is an iconic album cover and it's very much a location. It absolutely is, yeah. All right, so, uh, yeah, Dr. Drang, tell us about your experiences sort of getting into Bowie and discovering Bowie. Well, I um, I have similar tr troubles uh, that Erica had, uh, complicated by the fact that I'm, of course, much, much older. And 
So I started listening to popular music in about 1972, which would have put me at the right age, and I was 12 at the time, would have put me at the right age uh, to have listened to Ziggy Stardust. But Ziggy, Ziggy Stardust wasn't on top 40 AM radio in the States. At no. least I don't remember <laughs> listening to it. Right. So what I was hearing at that time, for whatever reason, there was a lot of uh, Philly soul, Earth, Wind & Fire, the OJs, stuff like that was playing a lot, very popular. Oh, Elton John, of course, too, uh, was on at that time. And, you know, and I continued listening to that as I was going through junior high and stuff. And I believe the first Bowie that I heard and knew was Bowie would have been something off of the Young Americans album. Mm. Uh, whether it was Young Americans itself, whether it was Fame, uh, I don't know. But it, it almost had to be that because that was a soul album. And it sort of fit in with what, for whatever reason, I mean, as a top 40 station, why soul was... was uh, was such a big deal on that. I think it had to do with the DJ who was on at night when I listened. Um, that's, that's was sort of in keeping. So I think it was probably young Americans or fame. Interestingly, uh, you know, this was before I was a Beatles fan really. Uh, so I've got, I didn't come to fame through the John Lennon channel. I, I came at it through, well, it was popular of course, uh, but through the David Bowie channel. And then after that, it probably wasn't until you know. Then I'm then I'm picking up whatever comes uh, whatever comes. What came after uh, Young America? Oh, Station to Station. So you're getting Golden Years, right? And TVC One Five, uh, which is a spectacular song, um, which I'll probably say many times uh, during the show. And then sometime in college, I kind of went back and went into and. You know, then you start recognizing, oh, no, I've been hearing these songs. I just didn't know who it was. And then I but then I started to more excavate and and find Ziggy Stardust, of course, uh, Hunky Dory to some extent. And, and, you know, probably the song that most makes Bowie fit on the incomparable network, which is Space Oddity. Of course. Yes. Uh, yeah. You know, you that was that sort of like air, you know. It's it, it was it was I it guess has always been there. It has always been there. It, although I guess it didn't get issued as a single in the states until sometime in the early to mid seventies. Oh, that's interesting. Maybe after the success of Young Americans, perhaps. Uh, yeah, or maybe or maybe on I think on the heels of of uh, Ziggy because he did he did a Ziggy tour oh, right, here, okay. and so it was probably they they said, hey, you know, there was this thing that was kind of a hit in England. Maybe we should issue it over here, and I and it was. So, frankly, that maybe that was the first thing I heard, but the first thing that I heard that I knew was David Bowie, I'm pretty sure was on Young Americans. Hmm. And what, what was it about that that sort of that drew you in? I mean, you said you were listening to radio that was playing soul music, so I assume that you liked soul, so... Yeah, I did, and and it was uh, it was extremely popular music music here at the time, and uh, it it had this weird. I mean, you could, you heard parts of you know Earth, Wind, and Fire or whatever in it, but it, of course it was very different because the vocals were very different, and well, and it was an Englishman's take on absolutely a, a very American kind of music. 
Absolutely. And, you know, later on, I recognized, you know, he's got the instrumentation a little bit different. There are a lot of things that are that are different about it, but there was enough there that made it sound like what I had been listening to uh, to draw me in. I've always found the success of Young Americans and the popularity of Young Americans in America quite fascinating because it is (laughs) like to us, you know, to English people when we were growing up it did sound like an american record but <laughs> as an adult now having you know sort of obviously heard a lot of american soul it's so clearly not you know it's so obviously a sort of an outsider's take on that form of music and yet it is still very popular in america i think americans have always been interested in hearing what other cultures the uk especially sort of think of our our pop culture i mean young americans is one example but also uh, american gods by neil gaiman which he wrote after living here mm. for quite a while which it's just it you can very clearly see that it is the united states our country well it was my country at the time um viewed through the eyes and the lens of somebody who is from elsewhere and the same thing happened with with young americans well and of course in my own field the popularity of thinking about it of english writers doing superhero comics mm-hmm. it doesn't hurt exactly. that it's just a good song oh sure but, oh, <laughs> i mean that's that's yeah. what drew me oh, yeah. in i meant the album as a whole but yes i mean young oh, well, americans yeah. the song is is a great great song um so yeah david Tell us about your experiences with David. I'm starting to sense a theme here, and I want to come back to that, but tell us about your experiences first. Well, I was going to say, Dr. Drang stole my answer. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm a year or two older than the Ziggy Stardust album. And probably the first thing I heard was either Space Oddity or something from Young Americans. And even at that, you know, I don't know how consciously it was, because I was really young at the time. And... When in, in uh, 1983, we moved from Florida up to New York. And so suddenly I'm thrown into a whole new world, a whole a very different kind of school and, and situation and everything. And I latched on to music because that was a constant. That was something that I could listen to and talk to other people about. And that's right about when the... Um, Oh, what's the album? Oh, gosh. The Let's Dance album mm-hmm. hit yes, 83. With, with China Doll and Let's Dance and Modern Love and everything. And I, you know, I fell in love with that album. And that was right about the, the time when I'm, I'm able to go to record stores on my own and check things out and listen to stuff and go to the library and take stuff out. And I'm going, OK, I want to hear more of this guy and realizing that I had heard more of him all of my life and just hadn't associated the name. Right. So it was like all of these songs that I recognized and going, oh, and then hearing them in the context of the album, right, instead of just the singles. And and from that point on, I just I, I paid attention and kept collecting. So the theme here clearly is that for all of us, we've all just kind of grown up with his music being always there and very much a part of our lives growing up. And exactly the same is true for me. My mother was... Uh, probably a bigger Bowie fan than my father, but my father liked him fine as well. Um, and my mother had uh, a few albums, including Changes Bowie, of course, like the, one of the first best ofs, um, which is you know a great introduction to Bowie. So like you guys, I can't actually remember the first Bowie song that I heard, um, but the first sort of 
the first one where I was aware of, oh, this is interesting, and it's this guy Bowie, and I should pay attention, was actually Ashes to Ashes. Okay. Mm. Which was a, I don't know whether how well that was received in the US, but in the UK, that was a big hit. That was like, because it had the, the really weird music video. It was an odd sounding song anyway. It was played on the radio all the time. We would see the video on television on top of the pops. It was a big thing. Um, and that was the first thing that made me sort of really pay attention um, and attracted me to him as an artist and made me then go back and sort of, as you said, you know, re-seek uh, his records in my mother's collection and sort of listen to stuff. I also had my uh, my father's brother, my uncle, um, made me compilation tapes of early Bowie stuff. So I was listening to things like, uh, you know, Aladdin Sane and Diamond Dogs when I was quite young. Um, but it was all mixed up because he would cut out what he thought were the boring tracks. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I have, like, I can sing along to things like Joe the Lion and Panic in Destroyed, no problem. But some of the other tracks on those albums uh, that <laughs> are, you know, less poppy, I, I've barely ever, ever heard. <laughs> it's really odd. <laughs> wow. Well, I'm, I'm curious, Anthony, you, 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 so Ashes to Ashes is the first one you remember. What did you think of it? Because it's it's a follow-on song, right? right? Yeah. yeah. So well, what I, what did you? Was it just oh well that you know there's this there's this interesting lyric about a guy called Major Tom. I don't know what it means, but it's a cool song. Is that how is that how you handled it? Honestly, that I do not remember. I think I had already heard Space Oddity at that point because of my parents record collection which i raided for everything like my entire you know musical foundation is based on my parents record collection um i think i'd already heard it so i think i got the reference mm-hmm. um or if i didn't maybe my mom may actually have even told me because as i say she was quite a bowie fan so uh, she may actually have explained it to me i'm not sure but also i liked it because it was just weird and i was mm. into a lot of weird pop music in the early 80s <laughs> Why um, does this not surprise me at all? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose, I suppose. But it is, I think it's fascinating that Bowie has been such a part of so many people's lives. And like, as you said, like Space Oddity is like air. Well, Bowie was like air because he was just, he was always there. And, you know, give or take a few blips up and down here and there. You could always pretty much rely on Bowie to be good to be interesting, you know, he was never boring, and to be constantly changing, which, of course, he became, you know, famous for. Right. Well, you know, the thing about Bowie was that I, the first thing I thought of when I when I heard of his death was he just never, he was never an oldies act. Ever. Right, yes. yes. And uh, how many people can you say that of? Not very many. And and still going to his own beat, no matter what the era, no matter what the style, mm-hmm. but yeah. always somehow being contemporary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no matter what was going to be accepted by the audience, right. he he just did what he wanted. Everybody had to come along or jump off the train. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- there were, again, there were a couple of periods where that wasn't the case. And post Let's Dance is the most famous example um, where he did really have a bit of a meltdown because he was trying to please his existing audience. But the majority of his career, yeah, he he danced to the beat of a different drum. He really did. Uh, and he led the way in many cases. Not always. Sometimes he was a uh, an early adopter of an existing trend. Um, but a lot of the times he was more than an early adopter. He was, you know, an instigator and an innovator. 
He appeared in a, in a video game, for goodness sakes, and wrote the soundtrack <laughs> to it. Omicron Nomad Soul. They've actually, Ubisoft have made that free for download now to commemorate his death. Oh, oh, wow. oh good. I haven't, oh. I mean, I played it when it first came out because David Bowie doing the music. And and yeah, I, know, I don't know if I ever made it all the way through, but I kind of, <laughs> it was one of those things I always meant to go back to and try to continue. It, it glitched out on me, so I couldn't finish, but I, I still got to a a few of the cutscenes where you get to see digital David Bowie performing his, you know, sort of lounge act in this in this club, and it was just, <laughs> I was I was transported. It was that was probably one of the highlights of my entire video gaming experience was just that moment, just because I was watching David Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> well, and he did cross media uh, as we've, you know, he was an actor. He did do things like soundtracks and stuff as well. And so, okay, let's, let's, let's talk about that for a little while. Um, have you all, I mean, everybody's seen Labyrinth, obviously. (laughs) Uh, Uh, I, I I have not. Oh, surely. Really? No, I I have not. Well, you know, when did it come out? Uh, 1986. Yeah. See, I'm, I'm an adult by that time. I'm I'm uh, I'm grown up. I'm married, uh. and it was something that I kind of wanted to see, <laughs> and and I was actually going to watch it last night uh, as as prep because I figured it was going to come up, and things <laughs> and things happened, and I and I couldn't uh, I, I my movie watching time got cut short, and I couldn't couldn't watch it. So no, I have not seen. I mean, I know I've seen the pictures so many times, but right. I will <laughs> I will step back and let Erica talk about labyrinth well I, so will i but i just want to quickly say i i saw it in the cinema um and then i didn't see it again except that uh my parents my sister is quite a bit younger than me and my parents bought a vhs copy of it for my sister when she was a child and anybody who has children or very young siblings knows that uh when they like something they will consume it again and again and again mm. and again mm. and so i have seen labyrinth more times <laughs> than probably any other movie just because of my sister wow <laughs> uh, i don't have that excuse um I, I did not discover labyrinth as a child actually it was just which is weird considering how mm. much my parents like David Bowie, but I'm pretty sure I did not see it around the time it came out. I didn't discover it until I was just hardcore into that David Bowie phase where I was trying to find everything I could find with him. And so I think it was probably my junior or senior year of high school. So I was a teenager uh, that I saw it. And because I was so in love with David Bowie, of course I fell in love with this film. Also, it's, I mean, it's, it's it's basically a, a Wizard of Oz style a girl gets to escape her you know drudgery life into a world of fantasy, which is right up my alley. So <laughs> this movie was kind of tailor made for me, and I fell in love with it. And I was the one to watch it over and over and over again. At one point, I actually had five different copies of Labyrinth because I had the version I had taped off of the Disney Channel, and I had the VHS version, and they had the VHS special edition, and then I got the DVD. And I mean, it was just it went on. I had the soundtrack. <laughs> I was I was a little labyrinth crazy and it became my sort of my touchstone. It was my comfort movie. Every time life got scary or unsettled, that's what I would watch to sort of ground myself in the world. So when I went away to college, 
first time away from my family. Everything was scary. I was a really shy kid. Uh, I, I would watch it almost nightly when I was in college. And I got to the point where my roommate thought this was just insane. But I could turn on the movie um, and then kind of start drifting to sleep. But I would wake up for every single David Bowie scene. No other ones. I'd sleep through the rest <laughs> of the movie. But if David Bowie was on the screen, I would wake up, I would sit up and she was like, you're insane. What is wrong with you? My poor roommate just <laughs> thought I was crazy. But he was he was just... I mean, it's it is a kids movie. There's no question about that. But there's an awful lot more that you can read into it looking at it with an adult's eyes. His character, to my mind, doesn't appear in the movie often enough, but he's there. He's there enough to to sort of feed you this great backstory. He's he's subtly underplaying enough parts that, you know, I've, I've built this wonderful headcanon about about the the background of this character and and he's he's not a mush, mustache twirling villain he is he's a, a pained and broken character who just just wants love gosh darn it and doesn't know how to reach out and and take it and this stupid girl blunders in and <laughs> tries to save her baby brother and she just does it all wrong as far as i'm concerned if i was the lead of that movie things would have gone very very differently um yeah, I've never written fanfic in my life, but Labyrinth is the very closest I have ever come to to doing that because it needs to be fixed. Wow, wow. You're, um, you're listening to the Labyrinth headcanon Right, <laughs> yeah, pretty yeah. much. This is the Labyrinth vertical. Uh, Hour three. You remind me of the babe. <laughs> Uh, uh, so Labyrinth aside, though, I mean, that was kind of, at the time, I remember people almost laughed at Bowie, you know, being in that movie and sort of, but now on reflection, we all look back and go, actually, he was pretty good in that. And he was a good actor. This is the thing about mm -hmm. Bowie that, you know, so many rock and pop stars try to move into acting, like just as many as actors try to become rock and pop stars. And so many fail. But Bowie was, I mean, he famously took uh, mime lessons, like was quite a serious mime student early on in his career. And that's how he learned some of the wonderful moves that he used to pull on stage and some of the you know fantastic mime work that he did in film. But he was as much a performer as he was a songwriter. And again, it comes back to this. It all came together for him to be a storyteller. He was just as committed to the craft of acting as he was to being a musician. And, you know, we saw that in things like The Man Who Fell to Earth and Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, and his stage performance of The Elephant Man, which I never saw, but I read reviews of, and reviewers were falling over themselves to be amazed at how brilliant he was in that part. Um, and I did want to talk to you, David, about this, because as the professional playwright here among us as the man who has actually earned a living on the stage what's your sort of assessment if you like of bowie as an actor i think he's he's magnetic he is fantastic i i've never seen him give a, a bad performance uh it's interesting the, the the storyteller comment because i'd never heard that but i mean that's kind of how i've taken uh, the other roles I do in theater, whether it's designing posters or making sound effects or or even props, which nobody is going to see closely except the actors. But I always have that in the back of my head is that I am telling a story even in this little tiny medium, even in this little like 30 seconds of sound that I have to put together to sound like a convincing thing off stage, right? And that kind of shines through both in his music, but in the way he performed on stage and the way he committed to characters in each of the different um, incarnations he had, and then taking it the rest of the way onto the stage and into film. 
Uh, I mean, the the Prestige, which is a film I enjoy. Mm. I like that movie. But he walks in it for what five minutes and steals the film. Oh yeah, he, he, is, he, he is the he best gets, thing what, in it. Ten minutes of screen time on that or something, and yet yeah, yeah. everybody thinks of it as oh, that's the movie Bowie's in. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And and it's what, what's what's amazing to me about that one is like like the Third Man, another film I love. Yes, people think Orson Welles is in it for the whole thing. They think Harry Lyme is the main character because everybody talks about Harry Lyme for the whole damn movie. And nobody talks about Tesla in this. He shows up. He does his thing. He leaves. The movie is nothing without him. The movie would not be the same without him, uh, which is it's you know, it's it's a beautiful act of movie stealing. Uh, and, and but he was like that in The Last Temptation of Christ. Right. Who would cast him as Pontius Pilate? But that is a terrific, terrific job of casting um, because he's he, again, he's not just the evil mustache twirling villain. Right. Um, I, I just I I kind of wish I had been able to see the elephant man on on stage because I, I can imagine. Yeah, I I'm I'm speechless at that. <laughs> trying to trying to figure out how to explain it. But yeah, um, just that commitment to character, uh, which really shines through across all all the media. Yeah, it really does. And as you say, in his you know work as a musician, his the personas that he adopted. I mean, it's a lesser artist may have. And Bowie did feel restricted sometimes by the personas that he built. He famously, you know, effectively mm. killed Ziggy Stardust because it was becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, that right. real life was now starting to mirror the story told on the record. And he <laughs> was being suffocated by the Ziggy Stardust persona. But he did manage to move on from it. And he didn't panic that he would be nothing without it. And he did that so many times throughout his career. Um do you think we ever really got to see the real David Bowie? I don't see where they're not all the real David Bowie. Yeah, I, I agree. I think I think they're all David yeah. Bowie. Interesting, right? Different facets of his personality. Well, yeah. and also I think, and I think you know, remember this career went on for an awfully long time. It's it's so what you know, forty five. <laughs> it's nearly fifty year career uh, that we know him, and you know, people change over over times like that. I mean, none of us are the same person we were 20 years ago. It's just that, um, you know, the people who have seen us over those 20 years have been the ones who are living with us. It's, it's not fans, right, who have mm. perhaps a vested interest in one of our versions, you know, and, he, and he, that's what he had to live with, of course, is the people and, and all artists do. Uh, when they want to do something new is, you know, the people who like them for what they were five years ago don't want them to change. They want them to keep churning out the same thing again and again. And what was, except, and I think, Anthony, you got this exactly right. Um, the except, Boeing didn't do that, except perhaps in the aftermath of Let's Dance, which was such a huge uh, hit for him and su such a, such a, I think, life-changing event oh, it for was. him yeah, yeah. Uh, that he kind of repeated himself a little bit there for uh, for a couple of years. Yeah, he, he found 
a huge new audience with Let's Dance. He was starting to feel and starting to become irrelevant around that time. Um, and then the story is that he he literally went to Niall Rogers and sent and said, "I want a hit. Let's write a hit. <laughs> I need yeah. a hit record." Um, and uh, you know, <laughs> and if you're if you're going to write a hit record, David Bowie and Niall Rogers are pretty much two of the guys you'd go to to do that. And it became such a hit and found him uh, such a huge new audience that suddenly he was more commercially successful than he had ever been, uh, earning more money than he ever had, doing bigger tours than he ever had. And Oh, I, I remember the, all the ads for the Serious Moonlight tour were everywhere in yep. New York that yep. year. Well, and even later like, on uh, in the in the um, aftermath of things like Never Let Me Down, you had the Glass Spider Tour, which was an enormous production, a huge, massive stage production that toured all over the place, did like four continents or something. It was ridiculous. Um, and you know, he was famously burned out at the end of it. And that's what led to him sort of retreating away from the spotlight and forming Tim Machine. But, you know, even when you look at that whole era, that's still him changing into something else, being the chameleon. He hadn't yet been the person who was was the hit maker who was going after commercial success. So I, I don't I mean, some people, True. I think, maybe yes. look at that phase as selling out. I look at it as him trying something new yet again. Oh, no, I agree completely. Yeah, yeah. It's well, the, the other thing about that, about Let's Dance, was that was the first time he was... I mean, at the time, this was considered a comeback for him. Yeah. <laughs> be, because, because he had been away for a few years. He yeah. had gone off to do Elephant Man. Um, Scary Monsters was the last album that he had done, which was, was 79 or 80 or something like that. 80. And it didn't have, uh, I don't think it, at the time, I, I mean, I think now we look back at it and say, oh, yeah, it was a damn good album. But I think at the time, it, was, it wasn't it was as well received, maybe, as some of the stuff that he had done. So then he went off and he did Elephant Man and he was – and we all thought – I'm 20 years old at this point. I'm in my early 20s during this period. I kind of thought David Bowie was done as a musician and he was only going to be doing acting. Oh, wow. And, and I don't know if that was a common view, but he had been gone for a long time and the guy had put out albums like Clockwork ever since 1970 or so. Mm. And suddenly in, in, so he put out 10, 11 albums in that decade. And then suddenly he went two, three years without an album. And he had this other thing. And we all knew, you know, because of the stage persona that he, personas that he had always adopted and the way his stage shows had always worked, we knew he was a very theatrical guy. And now, okay, now he's on Broadway in Elephant Man. He's done. He's, he's found the new thing that he's going to do and he's not going to do music anymore. It's, it's, it's what I thought at the time. And then he comes back with Let's Dance. And yes, there's no question. It's, it's, much different from his earlier stuff. It's, it is very commercial. Boy, it was good. Man, that was a great yeah. album. Oh, it really was, yeah. There's a reason that it was so popular. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And, and it, you know, the, the, uh, you, you mentioned everything about his stage shows changed because it was so massive. And he became, you know, the way Pink Floyd turned into or the Stones with these gigantic productions uh, you know, he wasn't playing little places anymore. Um, oh, God, no, no. No, he's playing no, enormous no more, arenas and stuff. Yeah, no more beer light to guide him. 
Hmm. <laughs> uh, you mentioned about him putting albums out like clockwork. Uh, I think it was the BBC put a chart together a day or two ago with effectively a sort of Bowie chronology. Um, just his music, just looking at, you know, sort of how successful his uh, albums had been. And you look at that period of the 70s and, oh my goodness, he put out more music than, you know, some rock musicians do in their entire 30-year career. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. That was more of a thing back then, though. Uh, people didn't know that... It, to me, it was Michael uh, Jackson who invented the stretched-out release uh, and, and not putting out an album every year or two and, and still being a viable and in, in, the, in the public eye kind of artist. Uh, you know, the Beatles always put... You know, they were also like clockwork. The Stones in the early years, like all, same thing, always putting out product because up until th- this is the drang history of rock and roll. <laughs> Forgive me, this is not necessarily uh, certified by by any academic uh, environment, but it, it, it seemed like up until about 1980, people were still thinking that a rock and roll career was evanescent. And right, right. you weren't going to last. And so you you hit it. When, when, when you got popular, you stayed with it and you put the pedal down and you put out product continually. You didn't dribble it out bits and bits, and bits at a time. You did it because it was going to be gone tomorrow. Right. It's like being a professional athlete. You've got maybe four years, so get everything while you can. Exactly. And, you know, I also wonder how, how much the advent of MTV uh, and music videos sort of helped helped along with that. You could stay in the public eye a little bit longer uh, because your videos were getting so much so much rotation, uh, which, you know, is reaching somewhat of a different audience than the radio is. And God, I cannot remember, like, I can't count how many times I saw that Dancing in the Street video with him in the check. He was everywhere yes. for years. I was going to skip over that, man. <laughs> I wasn't going to let you. Oh, the pants, the pants. It's an infectious video. I mean, it drove me crazy at the time, but at the same time, it got stuck in my head oh, and yeah. wanted to do the moves. And it's and a it's great like, song. It's a great song. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, the collaboration he did with Queen, Under Pressure. It's like kind of, yeah, it is kind of cheesy and it's a bit, you know, it gets, it's, a, it's an earworm, but it's a really good song. Um, talking about videos, I mean, we still get that now, actually. That's a really good point about, video enabling longevity of artists because with the release of Blackstar, his final album, and in fact, actually before it was released, when we got the advanced video for uh, the song Blackstar, the sort of, and the, the like eight, nine minute long video to go with the song, um, which is a, a, an amazing video. But we know now clearly he wasn't healthy enough to do anything other than a video, but he was able to do that. And so sort of, you know, present the art in that way, put it in our minds. And if we, you know, if he hadn't died, we would never have known that he was ill during the making of that video, because you can do that in film. You can hide that sort of thing. You can't do that if you're gallivanting around on stage doing live performances. Now, one of the, one of the things that sort of amazed me this week, and especially about Black Star, um, so, you know, I was awake when the news broke in the middle of the night and the next morning, you know, and seeing everything on Twitter. My kids, I don't necessarily know if they have any frame of reference for who this is, right? And so my my 14-year-old comes home from school that afternoon and we're just sort of talking and talking about music. And he goes, you know, there's this really good new album out 
Did you hear the story about it? Like, what What do you mean? Well, it turned out every, you know, all of his friends on Instagram, all these, you know, everybody has got tributes to Bowie. And some of the teachers mentioned Bowie. And so he went, he went and listened to Black Star on his own, just out of curiosity. And then he went back and realized that he knew all these other songs that have just been playing all of his life and connected them all. And, and he said, that's a really good album. And it's really impressive that he did that in the last year and a half. And I said, yes, that's kind of, you know, and, and then he said, do you know a Black Star is, is a medical term for a kind of cancer lesion? That's amazing. He's brilliant. And <laughs> and I I didn't know that. I'm like, "Oh my <laughs> god." Well, and and what's what's really funny to me about that is that um, you know, sadly this week Alan Rickman also passed away. Mm. And I figured, you know, okay, if that was the reaction to Bowie, if he knew hours before it came up in conversation at home because he was at school, you know, well surely, surely he'll have heard about this. Because all of his friends have watched all the Harry Potter movies, right? This is the big thing. And he comes home. I said, did you hear the entertainment news today? And he goes, did someone else die? And I said, yeah, Alan Rickman. He was like, oh, my God. Nobody was talking about that. And you would think that would have had more of an impact on his immediate age groups. Because of the Harry Potter movies, yeah. Because of Harry Potter. No, didn't really come up. But everybody, everybody was still talking about and thinking about Bowie. And we've been listening to the music all week here on, on request. Wow. So it's like, okay, my, my son has good, te- good taste unintentionally. I awesome. think that's a good demonstration of the appeal Bowie had across generations and across boundaries. I mean, as I've said, my mother, mm. my mother loves like, you know, pop and disco and she loved Bowie. My father is a, is a rocker. But he liked Bowie as well. You know, his brother, my uncle, the one who made me the tapes, he's basically a prog rocker. You know, he's the one who got me into Genesis, for heaven's sake. And he <laughs> loved Bowie. Um, there was, I don't know if you saw it, there's um, John Snow, the eminent British newscaster, not the character from Game of Thrones, <laughs> uh, made an, uh, an impromptu video, a sort of unofficial video, which he uh, posted online with his sort of personal feelings about Bowie and, you know, and he's not a young man. And he said, we thought Bowie was our rock hero, you know, cause he was an adult by the time Bowie's career was getting going. He's about the same age. And he was like, we thought Bowie was ours. And now I'm discovering that actually every generation regarded Bowie as theirs. It was, uh, you know, every generation discovered him anew because he reinvented himself, because he had such a long and prolific career, and because, frankly, he was just that damn good. It's, um, it, it reminded me, it made me think of Doctor Who, actually, <laughs> in the way that everybody has their Doctor, you know? Well, he basically regenerated, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, David Bowie as a Time Lord is something that I've, I've seen on Twitter a couple of times. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there's some more fanfic for you, yeah. <laughs> he would have been a good Doctor. He would have. Oh, don't don't torture us like that. Can you imagine? <laughs> I think he would have been a good other Time Lord. Right. Oh, imagine him as the War Doctor. My heart imagine him as stop. the Master. <laughs> stop. <laughs> um, but okay, so and that leads us to his impact on culture as a whole, across the generations, across boundaries, across media. He made such a difference and one of the really interesting to me because this wasn't really my experience but it really interesting to me that i've seen people talking about online is that bowie uh to a lot of people 
it felt like he effectively gave them permission to be weird. Like people who felt like yes. outsiders, outcasts, you know, the, the weird ones, the nerds, the geeks, which was, believe me, was definitely me when I was younger. But I found my outlet for that through heavy metal and goth music. Um, but I'm finding a lot of people apparently found their sort of, uh, you know, looked to Bowie and Bowie, Bowie was effectively saying, look, it's okay to be weird. Actually, you don't need to fit in. You can be cool and weird at the same time. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, that isn't, that isn't my take on Bowie. Uh, I mean, he didn't save my life or anything like that. Uh, I just really liked what he did. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you can certainly see that if you, as soon as people started writing that, I said, yeah, absolutely. And that ma- that makes a lot of sense I, because he was weird and, and, and yet incredibly cool. Yeah. I think for me, I guess I never really had trouble being myself, and maybe that's because I started listening to and absorbing Bowie at, at such a young age. But I think I can I can see that a little bit kind of from the other side in that David Bowie introduced me to this this persona who was different things at different times and who is strange and, and androgynous and, and just marching to the beat of his own literal drums. And... I knew kids when I was in school who were very weird and androgynous and colored their hair different colors and stuff. And I wasn't one of those kids, but because I had been exposed to David Bowie, I was totally cool with that. And I grew up in a pretty rural area and there were lots of kids who were not cool with that. So I feel like maybe had it not been for David Bowie and, you know, my understanding parents and stuff instilling that sort of thing in me, I, you know, I could have ended up being one of those other kids. And thank you to David Bowie for the part that he had in teaching me that it's okay to be different. It's okay to be queer. All that stuff is, is cool. Well, and, and speaking of rural areas, I mean, that's that's where I live now. And it, it's it still blows my mind. Uh, earlier, I guess, last summer, uh, we had one of his uh, fellow bandmates from Tin Machine came through and played at our venue here. And I did all the poster work and, you know, just, oh, hey, Reeves Gabrels is coming to town. This is awesome. And, you know, you could say to the locals, you know, here's this musician he's coming with his new album and his band and you know and they had no idea who he was and all you had to say was well he worked with david bowie oh oh i know this album and this album and this album and this album he's on all those albums he was a collaborator that's fantastic i'll be there and the show sold out wow and and it's like you know just when i think this town is like the stereotypical rural american middle western you know get me out of here kind of town they surprise me it's like and again, that just shows how how easily he was able to cross over those barriers and, and boundaries that that he was at all appealing to the kind of people who just live here and listen to Lawrence Welk. And it's like, yeah. and in a way, we we have that let's dance phase to thank for that because if he hadn't mm-hmm. hit that so. level of popularity with ma- and mass appeal, then. Um, many, many people uh, wouldn't have dug in a little bit farther and discovered all of those cool, weird things in addition to the pop stuff. So it's it's like my grandparents loved him, uh, but they discovered him through the Bing Crosby Christmas special. Oh wow! <laughs> and, <laughs> of and and what what amazed them and and my grandmother talked about this several times over the years was that his counterpoint to the song was so lovely and and their voices blended so well and and of course the story was that he didn't want to sing the song 
he wanted to sing something more interesting. So they came up with that on the spot Mm -hmm. so that he didn't have to sing the traditional song. And, you know, but but it is, it's a beautiful It's a really good performance, yeah. You know, without any, without having seen it, you know, you you hear the the names and you go, no, that's not going to work. It's fantastic. (laughs) Well, and I think the other interesting thing that I've always thought about that is that uh, you can see that while obviously Bowie is kind of like, I'm the new blood, you know, you're the old guard. At the same time, there's no, you don't get any kind of impression of disrespect to Bing Crosby from Bowie. Do you know what I mean? There's no sort of punkish, yeah, whatever, granddad, you don't know anything attitude, which you can imagine, you know, bearing in mind how successful Bowie was, you can imagine many performers of his era would have felt a little like, what am I doing here with this weird middle-aged geezer, you know? But Bowie clearly respected Crosby. And I think that really helps with the performance. Yeah. I think it's less obvious that Crosby respected Bowie, which is why it's not one of my favorite things. I kind of cringe every time I come across that. I, I would not call it fantastic. Though the Bowie's performance is great. I'm not sure he even knew who Bowie was. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's interesting, the story about Reeves Gabrels, because that leads to an area I wanted to talk about, which is the Bowie's collaborators. He was very good at choosing collaborators. He was very generous with many of his collaborators. Reeves Gabriel's, incidentally, was not just a collaborator. He also produced a couple of Bowie's later right. albums. He produced right. uh, Earthling and I think Hours as well. Um, and of course, was instrumental in Tim Machine. It was it was Reeves Gabriel's who basically, at the end of the Glass Spider tour, said to Bowie, look, you're clearly burnt out. You need to stop doing this thing that you hate, but you think everybody wants you to do because it's just going to kill you you've got to do go back to doing what you want to do because that's why everybody loved you in the first place so yeah. you know we all owe reese gabriel's quite a debt actually um but Look, there was looking re- it up he was also involved in omicron which i did not know oh i didn't know mm-hmm. that no but yeah there was there was reese gabriel's obviously there's tony visconti for many 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 years brian eno several times most famously yes. with the berlin trilogy but also with outside which is my personal actual actually favorite bowie album um but that's partly just because i love eno uh so many people that he collaborated with some of them uh robert fripp famously some of them many times some of them only once but he was really good at choosing people to work with that would compliment him and that would push him to do interesting new things. Yeah, I think it, you know, the original, I would say, is Mick Ronson. Mm. And Ronson was, was I think, unique. Now, maybe the, the, the very late Bowie, I don't, I don't know so much about his stage act, but Ronson share, uh, Bowie shared the stage with Ronson, which is not something you see. Uh, if you look at concert video from others, other stages of Bowie's career, typically, uh, it's Bowie. Yeah. You know, there are backup singers. There are musicians f- floating around, but it's Bowie. He's the focus. And he he allowed Ronson to have the focus for huge chunks of stage time uh, during the Ziggy years. And, and of course, played off of him uh, a tremendous amount. So, and, you know, I I don't think Ronson gets songwriting credit on those, but he made, the, his guitar made those songs the way they are. I mean, he was, 
I think he I think he did get production credit right. uh, on Ziggy Stardust. I don't have the album in front of me, but um, he he was a huge part of the sound of Bowie during you know that album in Aladdin Sane. Yeah, he was, and of course it was Ronson. Uh, that I'm not sure if this has sort of ever made the news in America, but over here it was huge. It was Ronson that Bowie put his arm around while they were performing, and I think it might have been Ziggy Stardust, um, on top of the pops. Now, some context, like men did not put their arm around other men in a friendly fashion. Right. In the 1970s in the UK. That, especially not on television, and especially not when wearing makeup and spangly glam rock outfits and, you know, there were things open to the waist and showing their chest. It was just, it was one of the most homosexual things that had ever been shown on British television at that point, even though it is not homosexual at all. But the public perception was that this was outrageous, absolutely daring and outrageous. And it was Bowie and Ronson who did that. Um, and I think, and that was a huge cultural moment as well. Well, it was, that was very toned down from the stage show, which was more like simulated fellatio with the, with Ronson's guitar. Oh, really? <laughs> during the, oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, uh, so, so the BBC, so Top of the Pops got, uh, got the safe version. <laughs> right, but even that was not, I mean, yes, safe compared to the stage version, but yes. for, for television at the time, yeah, it was not regarded safe at all. That's, uh, that's crazy. And then, yeah, as I said, you know, Tony Visconti, Brian Eno, all these people that he was so generous with. Um, and some of them, like Visconti, came back and worked with him again and again and again. So the must have, you know, and they didn't need to. This is the thing as well. Some of these people are very successful in their own right. Some of them, like Visconti, certainly, you know, I'm sure that man never needs to work again for the money. So I think it speaks to the quality of his work that so many of these people came back again and again to be effectively silent partners because nobody except enthusiasts really cares who else is on the records other than Bowie. Not to always bring it back to Labyrinth, but uh, even the Labyrinth soundtrack, he wrote all of the songs for the soundtrack for the movie, even the ones that he didn't sing. And it was actually uh, composer Trevor Jones who did the score for the film. And I don't know what came first, his songs or the score. But regardless, as you listen to that soundtrack, everything weaves together beautifully. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just it you, you don't necessarily know that it was actually written by two different people. So I don't know if it was Trevor Jones morphing or David Bowie or both of them working together. But whatever it is, it comes out great. Well, and, you know, one of the, the hottest tickets in New York right now is the play Lazarus, which he collaborated with um, playwright Enda Walsh, who is a very, very good playwright and uh, director Ivo Van Hove. And, and again, you know, picking really good collaborators. And it's basically an adaptation of The Man Who Fell to Earth as a musical that has some original stuff. The, the song Lazarus that's on Black Star is the title song from this. Uh, and it's got some, you know, other uh, songs from his catalog. And everybody I know who has seen it has said it is spectacular. Hmm. Well, spectacular in a literal sense or just in that it's amazing? Uh, just that it's an amazing night of theater. Right, right. Because I was going to say, I, like, I can't somehow imagine 
something like that being spectacular in the in the literal stage <laughs> sense, you know. <laughs> Not really the right mood, but but to think that that he was collaborating on that at the same time as all of this and and making Black Star and doing all of that other stuff, yeah, it's yeah. just sort of you know seeing that eighteen month period as I have to do as much as I can before I'm gone, right? Yeah, and 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 getting all of this art out and all of this art that it's not just that it's really good stuff, it's also you know at the time when it first premiered you know you go oh it's it's the man who fell to earth okay and and you know when the news came out about black star coming out soon right it's like oh he's got a new album this is fantastic and and in retrospect it all ties together and and is has an even deeper meaning than we could have thought at the time absolutely yeah yeah um actually something that's just come to mind talking about his generosity um you all know that Duncan Jones, the film director, is his son, right? That's Zoe Bowie. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, at the premiere of, I think it was Source Code, which was Jones's second major movie, the, uh, Bowie was there. He went to the premiere, um, you know, sort of in mufti, as it were. He didn't dress up or anything for it, you know. Um, <laughs> but he was there at the premiere accompanying his son, and he refused to answer any questions from the press. Not in a snotty way, but in a sort of, you know, people were like, oh, my God, Bowie's here, he's here, he's here. They all want to talk to him. And he was just like, no, no, you know, talk to my son. This is not, I am here to support my son. I am not here for you to talk to me and make it about me. Go away. And I just thought that was, yeah, that's wonderful. Well, I think, you know, what you said earlier about people, not just, you can imagine anyone would want to collaborate with Bowie. Um but people wanted to collaborate with him a second time, I think says more. Right. Uh, (laughs) It says more about him as a person than as, than as an artist. I mean, everyone would want to collaborate with him as an artist, but the fact that they wanted to come back means the experience was good. Right. Yeah. Because everybody wants to do it because like, Oh my God, it's Bowie. Of course that would be brilliant. But artists like him, often have a reputation for being difficult. <laughs> um, and, you know, Bo- there are stories of Bowie being somewhat difficult um, at various times throughout his career. But, yeah, clearly, overall, must have been fairly good to work with, or it must have been worth it, at least, even if it was hard work. Um, and he did drive his collaborators hard. He worked very fast. He was very, a bit like Madonna, is now he like went in like okay this is what i want to do and this is the kind of sound i'm after let's do it and let's do it quickly Mm. well when you think about the length of his career as we were talking about before it's a long time the number of stories of him being difficult is much much less than the number of stories of certain other actors or musicians being difficult in say a five or ten year period so (laughs) so i still think he's coming out looking pretty good i mean who doesn't have their bad days right well and also i mean he knew what he wanted mm-hmm. and he and he insisted on getting it and i think most people who are all, who are artists in their own right understand that and they appreciated it when it was done you know yes there are going to be bad days there there i've seen things about uh the young american uh young americans uh, sessions where he was you know dealing with backup singers and he wanted he wanted things to come in in an unusual way, and it was it was not the way they were used to singing. But they did it, 
And then when they heard it, they said, yes, he was right. That's that's how it worked. And they're happy with it. Yeah, I think that's that's something that a lot of artists go through. And it is important. I mean, God knows I've been in that in similar sort of situations myself working on collaborations where, uh, yeah, you, it is hard. But at the end of it, you're like, OK, actually, that was worth it. Something really good came out of that. Um, so, yeah, you, I can sympathize with that to an extent. Certainly not on the same scale <laughs> as David Bowie. <laughs> but, yeah, it is uh, with artistic endeavors. Sometimes you just have to sort of drive through and go, look, trust me, I know what I'm doing and it'll be worth it at the end. And you need to have that trust in whoever's guiding the ship, whoever's steering the boat. Uh, you need to have the the trust in them that they will get you to the other side and it'll be worth it at the end. And of course, you know, later on in his career, how could you not have that kind of faith in Bowie? Again, apart from a couple of stumbles like Never Let Me Down, it's hard to think of anything he did that wasn't at the very least interesting. Even if you didn't personally like it, everything he did more or less was interesting. And you'd look at it and go, wow, okay. He's, you know, he's trying something here. He's clearly working towards something and he's doing stuff that's worth talking about. It's not just dross. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's it's not the same thing. And as I said at the beginning, it, he's not an oldies act. You're you're not seeing uh, a guy having a fit because you don't play the guitar the way his original guitarist played it 50 years ago. Right, right. And I mean, Space Oddity, 1969. It still feels current. It still feels fresh. Mm -hmm. It's amazing, isn't it? That yeah, yeah. Uh, talking about him not being an oldies act, um, actually. After that period, when he was doing Tim Machine, and he also did the Sound and Vision tour, and that was the one where he famously billed it as, this is the last time I will ever play all of the classic songs. Now, that wasn't actually true. <laughs> he, he went <laughs> back it on never that. is. Yeah, it, it never is. But at the time, I think at the time it may have been, he may have been one of the first of those sort of long-lived acts to do that to at least say that and sort of at least appear to have that commitment and demonstrate if you like through that to say to people i'm not an oldies act and we're just going to get this out of the way and then we're going to focus on whatever i do next which yeah i don't think many people who had been around as long as bowie and not that there were many was doing that at the time certainly the rolling stones wouldn't do that hmm. now i was thinking about space oddity um on a long drive today that, that I took before the podcast. Um, and I, if you had never heard the song and you just had it described to you, you would not believe that it's still popular 45 years later. <laughs> uh, beca because on the surface, just hearing it described, you would think that this is a novelty song. Wouldn't True. you? Yeah. I mean, the, yeah. The title is a pun, number one. It's a pun on a movie <laughs> that was popular at the time or, or the year before. Um, it's uh, The movie had stuff about astronauts in it, and the song is about astronauts, and the, and the song is released on the eve of the Apollo 11 mission, and it's got sound effects in the middle of the song. <laughs> yeah. Everything <laughs> about that song... If you hear it described and don't actually know the song, would think, oh, that's that was written by Ray Stevens. 
you know, and it's it's like the streak or or whatever. It's that's not a real song. Oh yeah, it might be popular because you know it's funny or whatever, but it wouldn't be affecting to anybody. You wouldn't but regard it, it as a, as a classic rock song the way we do now. Yeah, no, not not on the surface. And and when you listen to the lyrics, and and, and again, this goes back to being a storyteller, and I and I love when things surprise me. I love when something so simple, um, you know, as, as just a conversation, who would think to write a song about a conversation between these two people, right? Mm. Or these two situations. And, and certainly if you're thinking, Hey, I want to write a hit, that's not what you're going to write. Right. And, (laughs) (laughs) you know, Nile Rogers would have talked him down from that. (laughs) And, uh, but it's just brilliant, and I and I love when a, a, a musician or a, a any, well any storyteller, frankly, can surprise me like that. Can take something so out of left field and and make me love it. Not just you know, oh, that's a good story, but it's a really good story told really well. Yeah, and it's it is a to me, it's a very seventies song and has a very seventies mindset to it, despite coming out in 1969. Um, and in particular, I'm thinking of the lyric of uh, uh, the papers want to know whose shirt you wear. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because it's it's very wise in its understanding of celebrity and commercial, commercialism. But, and, 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 you know, you guys all talked about the peanuts, uh, Charlie Brown Christmas about, so commercialism is not, is not a big deal, but it, it was, it had a seventies attitude toward it, which was basically, yeah, okay. That's, that's how it is. It wasn't railing against it. It wasn't, it was, that lyric always reminds me of, uh, the part in satisfaction where you know he can't be a man because he doesn't smoke the same cigarettes as me. It's it's thematically very similar, except Jagger is upset by it uh, because that's a very '60s thing. Oh, this commercialism—it's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> For Bowie, it's just it's water off a duck's back. That's the way it is. It's, it's a matter of fact, and that's the '70s yeah. to me. Um, have you all read the Flight of the Concords piece this week? Yes. Oh, Jermaine, no. Jermaine Clemens wrote. Have you all seen the Bowie episode of Flight of the Concords? Oh, yes. I think yes. I may have seen some clips. Right, maybe. the Bowie's in space. Well, he uh, he wrote this wonderful piece this week about the creation of that episode and that how it all started with the song Bowie's in Space that they used to do in their stage act. Um, and, I mean, it's a wonderful piece and you should you should go and read it anyway. But the thing, the reason it came to mind is because uh, he spends the first part of it talking about how deceptively complex Bowie's music is. Like they were deconstructing Bowie's music to try and they were first, they were, of course, trying to learn how to play Bowie songs when they were young. Who wasn't? One of my very first guitar songbooks was a David Bowie songbook when I was like 13. Um, but they were not only that, but then when they came to do this parody stroke pastiche, they were trying to build a Bowie song that, you know, didn't exist, but sounded like it could have existed and could be a Bowie song. And wow. were frustrated at how incredibly 
difficult it was. And, you know, they admit basically that by the end of it, they were like, well, what we ended up with is actually nothing at all. Like, you know, nowhere near as complex as a Bowie song, but it'll do. It'll pass. <laughs> <laughs> what a tall order. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Yeah. And I mean, it is a great song and it's uh, it's a great episode. The whole episode is brilliant. It's a wonderful, loving you know, gentle poke, gentle ribbing of David Bowie's persona and, you know, his music and stuff. Um, but yeah, that article is really, I mean, it's great for that, but it's also, as I say, you should read it because it's also just a lovely tribute to Bowie's, again, Bowie's legacy and his impact upon culture. Right. Cause it's not about spoofing everything, even though the song is very funny and the episode is very funny, but it, it comes out of a genuine love it's not it's not just hey i can i can do a fake song by this guy right it's it's a real a real uh, labor of love for them yeah it's like i always say the best parody is done by people who actually love the thing they are parodying you know mm-hmm. it's it's very difficult to hit the right notes unless you do actually love the thing that you are also making fun of as someone who does a lot of parody, I can attest to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, favorite album, Erica. Um, should I say my second favorite album since I pretty much already covered that? <laughs> oh, what, what, you, <laughs> that's true, actually. Yeah. So no. So okay. So you said it was Ziggy Stardust, yeah. And is that mm-hmm. just because it's been with you for? so many years did nothing that he released later you know hit you in the same way nothing he released later did hit me in the same way so i mean maybe a big part of it is just the fact that of when i discovered it but like i said it's it's not my favorite david bowie album it is my favorite album period so i mean it kind of rises above above everything else and and has this magical place in part because it was the first concept album that i had ever been introduced to in the first time I saw a story being told through the songs and and all of that stuff seemed seemed really mind expanding and, and magical and nothing's ever going to hit you quite the same after you experience that um, and also I really friggin love the songs I mean they are just they're great songs I don't want to I don't want to downplay that um, but I would say that. I mean, maybe it's just because I was kind of stuck in that that zone or that mode of David Bowie. But my second favorite of his albums is Aladdin Sane, which was the very right. <laughs> the very next one. So not not entirely different, um, but I just I I felt like it 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 was the closest thing I could get to my favorite album without being my favorite album. So I really liked it. Uh, I just I love the songs on that one and. But, you know, I was just thinking my actual, my favorite David Bowie songs, the two two favorite songs, I think, of all are probably Life on Mars and Oh You Pretty Things, which are from Hunky Dory, which, mm. of course, was before Ziggy Stardust. So, yeah, that is that is sort of my, uh, those three albums in a row, that's, that's my sweet spot. That's my butter zone when it comes to <laughs> David Bowie. <laughs> For what it's worth, I actually think that Aladdin Sane has overall a better selection of songs than Ziggy Stardust. You know, I love the song. A couple of the songs on Ziggy Stardust are fantastic, but overall, you know, Panic in Detroit, Cracked Actor, Driving Saturday, Aladdin Mm -hmm. Sane, Time, Gene Genie. I mean, come on. You know, these are (laughs) absolute classic songs. So, yeah, I I can't say I blame you for for choosing both of those albums, really. Um, Mm -hmm. Dr. Drang, what's your favorite album? Well, I'm going to be boring here. My favorite, my favorite album is is Ziggy. I mean, it's, uh, it 
you can you put that on and you listen to it and every the songs lead from one to another it is it is just a fantastic album and i i'm going to suggest that you're wrong the, the songs on there are every bit as good as the songs on uh, on uh, Aladdin Sane i'd say they're more consistent for me for sure yeah yes i i mean I, of course i love things that are on Aladdin Sane but i can't possibly my favorite snippet of Bowie lyric is Keep your electric eye on me. Um, mm. I don't know why, but there's just something about the you know his illusion of the first E in in electric. I don't know what it is about that, but that and it's not just the lyric; it's it's the way the music is going as delivery. he's saying. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. it's it's just it's spectacular. And I, whenever I'm listening uh, to. Uh, to Ziggy Sardos, which of course I play at maximum volume because that's what it says on the, on the <laughs> as it says on the album. That I I wait for that, and and I and if I'm if I'm doing something else, I I stop, and and I and I wait for that when when uh, that song comes on. And, Just like my okay. mom with Wham Bam, thank you, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, and I don't blame her for that. I mean, that's that's a. But you, but you've got the thing about about wham bam thank you ma'am is you got to build up to that you know yeah, <laughs> you know you you get, right. you get you get a chance to sort of put your stuff put you know put things down and say because you know it's okay here we go I think the, the the one thing I will say about Ziggy Stardust is it has the best end suite of any of Bowie's albums and because it ends with Ziggy Stardust, Suffragette City and Rock and Roll Suicide. Oh yeah. Which is, you know, I don't think any of his albums came close to finishing that strong, you know, yeah. with three absolute no. classic songs, one in a row, thematically brilliant and ending with Rock and Roll Suicide. I mean, you know, just fantastic. Yeah. Leave them wanting more. Absolutely. Yeah. So David, what's your favorite album? Well, uh, I'm going to kind of cheat. And maybe it's because I've been listening to this one mostly this week. Uh, but the 2002 collection Best of Bowie. Because, oh, that is a cheat. Oh, come on now. <laughs> Huge, ginormous but it, cheat. But it covers, it covers all the eras up to that point pretty well and pretty concisely. You know, it's good, it's good in the car. It's good while I'm writing. It's good while I'm cooking. Um, and, and, yeah, I go back and listen to the others. But if if I just want a good, compact, greatest hits collection, that is a pretty hard oh, one man. to beat. See, okay. Well, I, I would actually say changes, Bowie. I would I prefer yep. to, to that Cheers. one. Um, but my favorite album, as I mentioned earlier, actually, is, and I'm bucking the trend here then, so my favorite album is one of his later ones, which is One Outside from uh, 1993 or 94, I think, um, which is his sort of experimental art slightly industrial album that he made with Brian Eno. Um, it is one of the strangest albums he ever made. It was uh, it was called One Outside because maddeningly it was supposed to be the start of a suite of albums that would lead up to the millennium. Oh, it was 95. That's how I, right. Because there were going to be one album a year. Two was going to be, it was going to be two contamination and they were going to continue. And I believe the plan was to end with five inside in the year 2000 or maybe you know, December 99 or something, leading up to the millennium. Um, and, uh, of course, he, he actually never made any of those. He just made one. <laughs> so we have this stray album with a one that nobody knows why. Um, but I love that album because it is so unusual and so modern. So modern. 
even now you listen to it and there are things on there that you're like, that is, what is he doing? What is going on here? Um, I mean, like all of his music sounds timeless, but that album for me is, I don't know, there's something about it that is so strange and artistic uh, and a real kind of, I don't care if you like this. This is where my head is at right now. Um, a feeling to that album that I love it. I, I'm a sucker for that sort of attitude. And and I will say I have to listen to it to a few more times, but I I'm liking Black Star. Mm. Well, and that's that's that was the other thing I was going to lead into was Black Star is, uh, I mean it's not his most innovative album. It's certainly not his strangest album. But you know it only has what seven tracks, eight tracks. Yeah. Some of them are quite long. Uh, and the whole album, of course, I mean, it is his gift to us. He knew he was dying as he made it. And the whole album is his statement, his uh, last testament to the world and his thoughts about his life and his impending death. And for that reason alone, it takes on a very, very special quality. Yeah, I, I haven't listened to it yet, and I don't think I will be able to for a while. I haven't actually listened to any David Bowie or watched Labyrinth or anything since I heard the news because it just it affected me too deeply. Um, I think today, after talking about it, I'm, I'm, I will probably go and listen to Aladdin Sane because I think I'm, I'm at the point where that is what I can handle. I don't think I could go back and listen to Ziggy Stardust because it is just too much a part of my core. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not ready to grieve at that level yet. But um, for me personally, I think I think I'm at the, the Aladdin Sane level. And uh, it's kind of like, you know, DEFCON levels. Eventually, I will get to the Black Star <laughs> point and I will be able to listen to his last album. But it's going to be a while. <laughs> the one thing I will say about Black Star is that it's not maudlin. I mean, there are no, soft there are soft passages in it, and it's very reflective, obviously. But it's not maudlin, you know. So don't be worried that it's all sort of like sad songs about oh how terrible it is that we're all going to die. It's not, <laughs> you know, that's not what it's about at all. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> um, Doctor Drang, have you heard it yet? I have not, and uh, I wanted to put some distance uh, between his death and and my listening to it. Not so much because I thought it was going. I, I just. I wanted to hear it without the baggage sure, of, right, of, of thinking right. of him as being dead. So, uh, you know, it's, it's coming along. I, uh, and, and unlike Erica, I have been listening to uh, my old Bowie uh, throughout the week and, and revisiting old friends. Yeah, I mean, the only reason I listened to it at all was because my 14-year-old was like, you have to listen to this. This is amazing. And, and there was that that moment where I realized my son has listened to a new David Bowie album before I did. <laughs> That's, That's so cool. Wow. That is so cool. Amazing. <laughs> and, and liked it. That is fantastic. So. Um, I have a, a slightly macabre kind of tradition, if you like, of when artists, musicians that I like pass away, as has been happening with increasing frequency, uh, you know, as I grow older, I listen to their music like for that day. So I spent yeah. December 26th and 27th listening to nothing but Motorhead. Um, I regularly on the anniversary of Lane Staley's death every year, I listen to Alice in Chains all day. Um, and so I have spent the last few days listening to pretty much, you know, nothing but Bowie um, and remembering again, just how amazing he was. You know, for all we've talked about his cultural impact, we've talked about his his enormous legacy and sort of crossing boundaries. But at the heart of it all, 
at the center of it all, if you will, um, is he was a great songwriter and he made amazing music. He was a storyteller. He, he was, was indeed. Yeah. Yep. He was indeed. All right. Let's draw to a close there. Thank you very much, Erica. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you so much for for letting me do this. It was uh, I was I was a little I was a little worried. I'm not going to lie, but um, I think this was this was a good a good thing, good way to grieve. All right, uh, Doctor Drank. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure, and thank you for stepping in to host. Uh, my pleasure, and David Lur. Thank you very much for being here tonight. This was a good a good conversation. Good. So I'm, thank, I'm, thank you. You're all very welcome. Uh, I'll just quickly say to the listeners, if you do want more discussion of Bowie, keep an eye out for this week's Unjustly Maligned, in which I talk to my old friend and Bowie megafan, Chris Mitchell, about Tim Machine, um, which is a, a very maligned period of Bowie's career. But, uh, you know, I think is actually really good and was absolutely vital to his reinvigoration into his later sort of period of work. Uh, and you'll find that at ump.fm, published on Monday the 18th. In the meantime, thank you all very much for listening. Do take care of yourselves. And uh, in a week when all of a sudden the stars look very different, goodbye. <laughs>